If uh, you are, um, he's right. He'll never hear the end of it. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Um, if you're just joining us, we are uh, in the middle of, just slightly over the middle of uh, uh, our sermon series in the book of John. And over the last few weeks, we've been in what's called the farewell discourse from chapters 13 to 17. It's basically the farewell discourse because it's Jesus' uh, final night with the disciples. It's his, uh, it's his goodbye uh, to them before he dies. And so uh, John 17 is a prayer. It's usually called the high priestly prayer. And uh, it's usually divided up into like five-week sermons, and we're just going to try and do it in one fell swoop. So here we go. So if you are uh, able, I'd ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. It's also pre- uh, printed for you on the inside cover, not on the inside cover, It's also printed for you in your worship guide. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of this world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have, everything that you have given me, is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the word, and I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their, through their word, that they may also, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly, become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you have loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Death has a way of organizing your priorities. It's kind of built in. 
Death is a way of boiling uh, your priorities and what you think actually matters. Uh, boils it down to what you think is actually significant. And so if you knew with absolute certainty that tomorrow you were going to die, what would you pray for tonight? What would you, what would you pray for? Who would you pray for? Would you pray at all? How would you cope with dealing with something so tragic? I think it's an important question to ask because that's exactly where we find Jesus in his last night with his disciples. And here we see him praying one last time with the disciples the night before he's going to die. Judas is leading the soldiers back to him. Their time is short, and then he's about to arrive and arrest him. And so on this night, what does Jesus pray for? What's on Jesus' mind just before he dies? What does he ask the Father for? So to understand John 17 as a whole, I think we have to understand what's probably actually the most abstract portion of the passage. It's the idea of glory. What is glory? It seems to be on Jesus' mind because right off the bat you can see that he mentions it five times in the first five verses, and then he mentions it throughout the rest of his prayer. He keeps bringing up the idea of glory and revelation and glory. So what exactly is glory? How would you define it? Typically, glory is defined as something weighty. Something weighty. Glory is something with profound presence and immovability. It's something, it's not trivial, it's not trite, it's not fleeting, it's not easily removed, it's something substantial. It has a lasting presence. Glory is something that's heavy, that pulls and directs and shapes everything around it. Glory is weighty. So an example of of glory that Keller uses, uh, he says, imagine a river flowing, this massive river flowing uh, kind of at full force. But then you took a huge boulder and you place it right smack dab in the middle of the water. And what happens? All the water goes around it. It bends and it moves around the weight and presence of the boulder. And it's because you could say that the boulder exercises its weight on the water. It has a much more profound glory than the water. And the water yields to it. Think about the planets and the sun. What keeps the planets together is the tremendous gravitational glory of the sun keeping everything in order exactly where it should be because the glory of the sun is far greater than the glory of the planets. So maybe an example of this, of imagining glory, comes from the Bible. It's one of my favorite stories. It's a simple story, but it's a story whenever Jesus crosses the Sea of Galilee and he goes over to Gerasene. So he's with his disciples, crosses over the Sea of Galilee, and he comes up to the road, and as he's walking to Gerasene, there is a demoniac that was tormenting people outside the city in the graveyard. And so as they're, they're coming up, this, uh, this, this demon-possessed man was incredibly violent, not letting anyone pass. He was hurting people, and he was hurting himself. They'd try to chain him up, and he'd break free, and he's just creating all sorts of chaos. And Jesus walks up, and the, and the demon says, Who are you, O Son of God? Have you come to torment us before the time? Jesus doesn't even say anything. He just walks in the room. That's glory. And it's almost scary to think about that much glory. But yet you want to know more about it. Jesus doesn't even have to utter a word. And the demon bows in submission and begs him 
and says, throw me in the pigs, just don't torment me. That's power. That's glory. So why is Jesus so preoccupied with glory in his final prayer? Why leave the disciples with this if he's leaving? If he's leaving, then where's the glory to be found? Let's, let's approach it this way. What's, what's the most glorious thing in your life? What has the most profound significance in your life? What do you ascribe the most weight and importance to? What is it that uh, everything in your life bends and moves and is shaped around? Maybe it's marriage, kids. doesn't have to be a bad thing. It could be a good, blessing thing. It could be marriage, kids. It could be your job. If you're single, maybe it could be getting married. If you're married with no kids, it could be having kids. It could be the next tax bracket. Maybe glory is, is just coasting. You're not particularly upwardly, upwardly mobile. You just kind of want to get the right job, the, the, right, the right house, the right neighborhood, right church, and then kind of coast the rest of the way through life. What's that immovable rock that's in the river of your life that everything else goes around? What do you give glory to? What is it you give glory to? Whatever that thing is, whatever it is for you, the course and direction and flow of your life will be moved and shaped by it automatically just because of the nature of what glory is and what it does. Because whatever is most glorious will shape everything. So if it's career success, then working an 80-hour-a-week job is perfectly reasonable. There's things that need to be sacrificed for you to obtain that kind of glory. If it's getting married, then you're always kind of working the angles, always putting yourself in a position to meet someone. And maybe every social gathering, you're always calling somebody to see if there's something that you missed, maybe to meet somebody. Because everything works towards that glorious thing that you want. You see, whatever it is that you say is most glorious shapes how you live. Because it's not glorious if it doesn't change anything. If everything stays the same, then it has no glory. Glory implies purpose and value. Which means that glory gives you a mission. And you pursue and you sacrifice for whatever you believe is most glorious and will give you that sense of meaning. But this is where sin comes in and has its playground because Romans 3.23 describes sin in terms of glory. It says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Which basically it's telling you that sin blinds and convinces you that the glory that you were created for can be found in other things. Even good things, wonderful things, can become ultimate things. It's trading the glory of knowing God for things that are trivial and fleeting and don't last. It's trading knowing God for a piece of fruit. It's trading knowing Jesus like Judas for 30 pieces of silver. Because what sin does is it comes in and it makes promises to you that you can attach yourself to things that will never truly satisfy your deepest desires and everything, it's okay in your life to pursue it. That everything in your life should be wrapped around this idea of whatever glory you decide for yourself. But in the end, sin is trading real glory for trivial glory. And if that's true, then sin blinds you to your purpose for why you even exist. It blinds you to be able to pursue God, but it also does something with other people. Because if you look at the nature of sin, what's the first thing Adam and Eve did when they sinned? What's the first thing they did? Whenever they realized the brokenness had just entered into their lives. 
they hide. They hide. And they cover themselves with fig leaves. So their life became not about being known, not about pursuing one another, not about seeing glory in someone else. It was about actually running from one another and hiding. And I think we do it all the time. I think we see it in the most simple and subtle of ways. There's a, there's a video uh, about social media, about this idea of what we've been talking about for the last few weeks, of projecting an image of who we want the world to be, of projecting fig leaves to the world to hide who we really are. And there's a, the, the video is called What's on Your Mind? And it's, 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 it's pretty it's sad and it's hysterical at the same time. But basically the video starts off like this. So a guy's just kind of sitting at home, sitting in the dark with his girlfriend and TV's on, and he's just kind of just bags under his eyes, just kind of scrolling through Facebook. And he's just kind of scrolling through, and he just sees just what you see, you know? Somebody taking a selfie at the beach, you know, while it's rainy out, you know. And then he scrolls down a little bit more, and then another picture of somebody's feet with the beach. He sees that, and then he looks down, and he sees this beautiful five-star gourmet meal. And then he kind of looks over and looks at his microwave dinner. And he kind of looks back at it. And then uh, scrolls down a little bit more, and he sees just this beautiful couple, just these two models of a couple, just smiling together in this beautiful backdrop. He kind of looks over at his girlfriend, She's sitting there in her pajamas, no makeup on, just eating, in a ba- eating a bag of chips, staring back at him. And so he goes, status update, sushi night with the girl. One like. Somebody liked it. Kind of smiles a little bit. Then after that, he goes to a, uh, he basically is driving along this road and sees this amazing uh, it's kind of this amazing, like, picturesque scene. So he puts his headphones in real quick, gets out of his car, and just does a quick selfie with that in the background, and just goes, like that, takes a picture, and then the status update says, just ran 20K. Then he gets back in his car and drives away. 20 likes. Then after that, he goes and does a presentation at work. People are just kind of nodding off, and he's trying to get through this, and then he, status update is, presentation went great. 50 likes. Then after that, he actually finds uh, his, his girlfriend's been cheating on him. So he's heartbroken. But status update, finally single. So he says that, gets 100 likes. Then after that, he can't perform at work because his life is falling apart. And his boss fires him. And you see him walking out with the box full of all of his stuff. Status update, finally quit my dead-end job. Hashtag follow your dreams. And then at the very end of the video, he actually finally is honest, and he's scrolling on Facebook, and he sees his ex-girlfriend happily engaged to this new man. Finally he had it, and he actually typed in, my life is awful. And then the next scene, it just showed somebody clicking on his name, and then clicking unfollow. I think we cover ourselves with fig leaves all the time. We adopt an image of how we want the world to see us because it's wrapped up in what we think glory is about. We want people to think that we're successful, so we overspend. We want people to think that we're great Christians, so we never, ever, ever would utter that we actually struggle with sin. We want to be perceived as smarter than everyone else, so we never admit that we're wrong. We want people to like you, which means you're willing to let people walk all over you and take advantage of you. 
We want our lives to have a weight and meaning, even though deep down something tells us that we are a sham and we're a fake. And we try so hard to cover that up. But in the end, all we're doing is adopting an idea of glory and purpose for our lives that will never be able to remove that gut feeling that we're really a joke or a fake or a failure. And just like in that video, I think we're afraid that if we're really honest about how we feel, we'll be rejected and we'll be abandoned. And that's really sad because if that's true, all that means is that no one will ever really know who you are. Imagine dying at the end of your life and nobody ever really knows you. And Jesus wants to introduce an entirely new weight in your life. The heaviest weight of all. He says in verses 3 and 4 that the mission and purpose of His life was to glorify the Father by revealing Him to the world. And Jesus constantly talks in John about revealing the Father to us. So what does Jesus do if He's revealing the Father? Well, you constantly see Him step into the brokenness and shame of others. Those that know their own brokenness actually got the most out of Jesus. Those that knew their inability, their weakness, and their pain got the most of Jesus. It was the blind, it was the lame, it was the outcast, the prostitutes, tax collectors, the woman with the issue of blood. It was the man who was crying out on the side of the street, Son of David, have mercy on me. That's where we see Jesus. Because Jesus doesn't run from brokenness. He actually runs right into it and shows us that the heart of the Father is that He wants to bring an end to sorrow and pain and meaninglessness. So Jesus shows us that the Father has not abandoned the world. Because if He has abandoned the world, think about it, if we're just left up to ourselves, then this is as good as it gets and nothing else matters. And there really is no hope. Because whatever glory you could come up with yourself, in the end you're going to die. Death will swallow up anything. What has more glory than death? Death is that great equalizer that makes the richest man just like the poorest. What can overcome that? Everything depends on God's willingness to bring an end to the pain and tragedy of the world. And here in Jesus' prayer, He says it Himself that this was the very job the Father gave Him to accomplish. To reveal the glory of God to us and make known who it is that everything in our life should be bent and flow and directed by. And then in the rest of His prayer, Jesus prays for how everything will stem from the work of the Father and Son. He doesn't just pray for Himself. He prays for the disciples. He prays for for us. And He says in verse 15, And he asked the Father not to take the disciples out of the world, not to remove them from the river and flow of a broken world, but to keep them there, but to pray that they'd be protected. And then in verse 20 he says, and not only these disciples, but also those who will believe in me through their word. That's you. That's us. Jesus prays for you. And he says, Father, as you have sent me into the world, so I send them into the world. I think we have to understand this in light of verse 10, because in verse 10, Jesus says that He gives us the mission of giving glory to the Son. So does that mean that we don't really glorify the Father? No. Quite the opposite. What He's saying is that it means that we get, we're given the mission of revealing the weight and majesty of Jesus. 
Because in Jesus, we can actually see and feel the answer to the brokenness of the world. Because He is the only access to God. We glorify Jesus by pointing to Him and saying, He is God in the flesh. He is the only thing worth living for. He is the one who solves the pain and sorrow and brokenness. He is the answer that God has provided. He is the evidence that He has not left you alone. That's why we point to Jesus, to give Him the weight that He deserves. To give Him the weight that He is due. Our mission is to to show that Jesus is of the most profound weight that people could imagine. But the thing is, is that any other weight or glory you could dream up for yourself is just 30 pieces of silver. And I think that you, know, you can kind of hear that and say, I, I, want, I, I want that purpose for my life. I want to feel like my life is devoted to the glory of God. I want to feel like it is. But it's always so ethereal. It's always kind of so confusing as to how you live that out. And so you say, yeah, I want that, but how do, I, how do we do that? What is the essence of Christ's mission that he sent us out into the world to accomplish? Is it, you know, just giving to India and building churches? Is it just maybe serving in a soup kitchen? Well, those things are good, but it's not at the essence of the mission that we've been given. So how is that at the end of our lives we can actually say the same thing that Jesus says to the Father? I think we all want that, that our life mattered, that it meant something. How is it that we can say, I have accomplished all that you have sent me to do, and I have no regrets? What he already told us a few weeks ago in John 13 exactly how it was done earlier in the evening Disciples are arguing about who would be the greatest in the kingdom. Who would be the greatest in this new kingdom that Jesus is going to establish? And going back and forth. And Jesus cuts through the noise, takes off his outer garments, kneels down, puts on a towel, and he washes the dirtiest, filthiest part of the disciples. He washes their feet. He washes the dirtiest parts of who they are. And what does Peter do? He says, no, Lord, you will never, ever, ever do this for me. You will never do this. You you don't wash my feet. Let me wash yours. Let me serve you. And Jesus simply says, if you do not let me do this, then you will have no part with me. If you do not let me wash the dirtiest parts of you, then you will have no part with me. And then he says, this is how the world will know that you belong to me. This is how the world will know that you are mine. This is how the world will, you will reveal my weight and glory to the world when you love one another in the same way that I have loved you. You'll wash the dirtiest, filthiest parts of one another. But in order to do that, you gotta let me wash you first. In the last few weeks, we've talked a lot about coping mechanisms and images that we project to the world, even today with the fig leaves, and I think this is a passage where it begins to come together. Because we've talked a lot about it, and the, the truth is, is that all of those coping mechanisms and all of those things are just representative of our unwillingness to face pain, discomfort, suffering, trial, discontent in our life. Because if that's true, all your coping me- mechanism is telling us and telling anyone else is that really what you give the most weight and glory to is brokenness. That sin has the most glory in your life. Sin is the one thing that everything else flows around. Because that's the one thing God could never deal with. That's the one thing God could never fix. So I hide it and I keep it, keep it hidden. 
God could never fix that part of me. He can't fix this part where I'm broken. He can't heal it. He can't bring any newness of life. So all our coping mechanisms say is that sin and brokenness have the most profound weight in the river of my life and everything else around it bends around it, even God. Because God can't do anything about it. And if we live this way, and you believe that God bends around the brokenness of your life, all it really means is that you have an image of God in the same way that you have an image of yourself. So, of course, when life gets hard and suffering comes and your image is attacked and it kind of falls apart, your coping mechanisms don't work, what else goes with it? God. God goes with it. So when you lose your job, oh, I can't believe God would do, God, God would do this to me. Whenever your marriage gets difficult, I guess God's abandoned me. He doesn't want me to have a good marriage. Whenever things happen, you always say, God, why will you not address this? Because our view of God is so wrapped up in our, in our passion for our own glory. It's so hard for us to let go. And just as much as the image you present to the world keeps people from really knowing who you are, your image of God keeps you from really actually knowing Him. Because if you're never willing to show your feet, no one will ever know you, and you'll never know God. And But the thing is, is that's exactly where Jesus wants to meet you. That's exactly that thing that you're trying to hide and cover up that you think everything else kind of bends around, that person that's making you this person that you know you're not, that's exactly where Jesus wants to meet you. Because the truth is, if you want the purpose of Jesus' mission, you can't go out into the world and fulfill it and reveal that Jesus is most glorious and most profound and He has the most presence in your life when you actually think that something else is far more glorious and more profound and more weighty. And this is why in verse 3, Jesus says that eternal life is truly knowing the Father and the Son. Truly knowing the Father and the Son. And the word knowing here isn't like somebody asking you, hey, do you know so-and-so? You know? And you're like, yeah, we're friends on Facebook. It's not that. It's not about familiarity. Knowing in the Bible's definition, it kind of goes like this. Adam knew Eve and a baby happened. Okay? It's that kind of knowing. Some of the guys I saw just kind of like, okay, okay, all right. Tell you what, that sermon got good at the end today. It's the type of knowing that is out of deep intimacy where all the fig leaves are gone. That is what we're invited into. Because it's about true intimacy with all the fig leaves removed and God seeing you as you are and you seeing God as He is. But unless all of that goes away, we can't actually see it. Because it's not enough. And this is where, if you ever notice, Jesus doesn't say a thing about dying for your sins in his entire farewell discourse. Maybe the idea of Jesus dying for our sins, we need more than that. Yes, he did that. Of course he did. But maybe the gospel is more. Rather than the idea that Jesus is out there somewhere, yes, he forgives my sins, but I have all this sin in my life and I don't know what to do with it. I have all this brokenness in my life. Yes, Jesus forgives us of our sins, and I know I have forgiveness out there generally maybe somewhere in eternal life, somewhere out there. I just don't have life now. I don't have it now. I don't know where it is, and I don't know how to get it. But I'll claim all day that Jesus is Lord. And that's why it's so hard to claim that Jesus is Lord when our own lives are the greatest evidence against it. And that's where freedom really comes. 
of knowing and beholding the Father. It's like this. When you first start dating somebody and you want to look really good for them, you wear your mom's cowboy boots, all right? But think about it like this from the other way. And not everybody does this, but just an example. Sorry, I had to be... What is a, what, maybe what does a woman do when she first meets this guy she's interested in? She puts on her makeup, looks her best. Guys do the same thing, just by way of example. Put on all your makeup. You want to look your best. You kind of want to present that image that will make them want you. But if you really think about it, when, when you're still doing that, when you're married, probably not very good. It's actually evidence of a really weak relationship. It's evidence that intimacy is not truly there. It's when all the makeup can be torn off and taken away. And you can to hear someone say, you are unbelievably beautiful. And I love you so much. That type of knowing is worth changing your life for. That is beautiful. And there's nothing more profoundly glorious and weighty that could ever be introduced into your life than to truly understand God's tremendous love for you. And the more you taste of it, the more you want of it. But it's hard to go out into the world to share that love when we're never actually willing to let Jesus in and show our feet. Because we'll always only really be presenting an image. We'll be giving something, we'll be giving people a meal that we've never tasted ourselves. You know, over the last few weeks, we've talked about brokenness and, and sorrow and pain and all of these things. And of course, today the invitation is to find Jesus asking you there so that then He can send you out to go do the same thing, to reveal His glory, to reveal His love and His character to the world. And that is a profound purpose. And I think we all want that purpose. Do you know that our life matters? I feel like it has weight. But I think there's another thing about facing pain, because I know it's hard, and we've, we've kind of hit on it pretty hard. We've hit on discipleship in real life. Facing pain in your life and sorrow and the things you want to hide is hard. I get it. I totally do. But I think there's one more aspect that's really important. It's the fact that when you begin to step into other people's pain, after having stepped into your own, your life will begin to make sense. Because there's nothing that pain does more than make you say, why? Where is God? Why is He doing this to me? Why is this happening? And you always wonder why, and you don't always have your why answers until you learn to use it to step into the pain of others. And here's what I mean. In my mid-20s, I went through about three years of depression. Really, really dark depression. It was really bad. It was awful. It's a sickness of the mind that I just... You never thought the heart could go to such dark and hopeless places, and it can. I spent about three years that way, and I came out of it, and I came out better, and God had removed all of my images, taken all of my coping mechanisms, taken the rug, pulled it right out. It was all gone. And it wrecked me for three years. And I always wondered why. Even though I felt like a better person after, I always wondered why. Why, God, would you do that? Why would you allow that to happen? Why would you do that? Why would you allow that to happen? Fast forward years later, a friend of mine in seminary basically had the same thing happen to him. 
the thing is, I didn't really like the guy very much. I know you're in seminary, you're supposed to be holy. We just didn't really get along. We didn't, you know, we just weren't really friends, okay? And so we didn't, we didn't really, uh, kind of graded against each other. We just weren't really, we just were images, grading against one another. And I heard about the guy, what happened to him, and I felt really bad for him. And he came in uh, one day to my office, and I was working there, and he just kind of sat down and just kind of broke down. He started telling me everything. He was just kind of so hurting. And then I just kind of started saying, yeah, I bet you feel this way. I bet you feel this way. And I bet you feel this way. And I was just reading his mail because I'd been there before. And I remember him saying, yes, that is exactly how I feel. And I said, well, I know how hard it is. I said, how about we start spending a lot of time together? And I'll, I'll be there for you and walk with you through because I know you're going to have a lot of doubts and a lot of lies that are, that are going to creep into your head, and I'll be there for you. So we start spending a tremendous amount of time together, and we, we become very close. And finally, towards, towards the end of it, he said, uh, you know, man, why would you, why would you do this all, all this for me? You spent, literally, sometimes I spent the whole weekend with him because he was suicidal. He said, why, why, why would you do all this for me? And I just told him a story. I said, uh, I said, there was once a man who fell down in a pit. Couldn't get out. Walls were too steep. Doctor walks by and says, oh, you're down in a pit, my son. Can I help you? The man says, yeah, you can get me out of this pit. He says, ah, let me write you a prescription. Tosses it down. And a priest walks by. Says, oh, you're down in a pit. Can I help you? He says, yeah, you can get me out of here. And the priest says, ah, I'll pray for you, my son. Then the man's best friend walks by. And he sees him. He says, oh, you're down in the pit. What are you doing? He says, oh, I'm stuck. I can't get out. Can you help me? The man jumps down in the pit with him. And the guy's like, you're an idiot. Why would you get down in here with me? Now we're both stuck. The best friend just simply says, no, my friend. I've been down in this pit before. And I know the way out. And when I told him that story, everything made perfect sense. That's why I suffered all of that. That's why I went through all of that pain. It was you. It was you, so I could be there for you. So I could step into your pain and give your life more meaning and value. So I could be there with you. And out of that came a friendship. He's one of my best friends to this day. He's a dear friend of mine. When you begin to look at your own suffering in light of serving others, that's when all of your pain and sorrow will begin to make sense. And the thing is, is you won't want to, you won't wish it didn't happen. You'll embrace it. And you'll say, I'm glad it happened so that I could be here for you. And that's the unity that Jesus talks about. That's the unity that he prays for in John 17, that we would be a place where we are willing to step into the pain and suffering of one another, where all the fig leaves are gone. Because you can't have unity and oneness without it being removed. Your pain will only make sense to you when you begin to step into the pain of others. And it was the same with Jesus. Because when you look at Jesus on the cross, none of what Jesus does makes sense unless it was for the purpose of loving you. It's just a guy dying on a cross. Even Jesus' pain only makes sense when you look at it through the lens of those that He loves. And they call it the high priestly prayer for a reason. Hebrews says that we do not have a high priest that cannot relate to us 
in the things that we suffer, but he himself was tested in all points, yet found without sin. Therefore, let us boldly run to the throne of grace. Whatever you're going through, whatever that pain is, Jesus is inviting you into it so that he can heal you and give your life purpose and send you out on the most beautiful mission to bring restoration and healing to an utterly broken and meaningless world. You will find no greater purpose. Jesus is down there in the pit with you. And just like Jesus, you'll, you'll die. You'll ask what your life was for. And Jesus will still be down in that pit with you. And He will say, I've been down in this pit before. And I know the way out. But it's only if we know Him. What's that pain in your life that you don't want to face? What's that cross? You want resurrection? You've got to have the cross first. I would challenge you this week. Be honest with somebody about how you feel. Just go to somebody and say, I'm angry. I don't know why. I'm tired. I'm exhausted. Take the fig leaves off and just go to someone. See what happens. The cross isn't fun, but I promise you, there's far more joy on the other side. Let's pray. Father, you are good and gracious to us in ways that we could never imagine. We will spend eternity comprehending your weights and majesty. We will spend eternity beholding your glory. Just like we read earlier, your glory is from everlasting to everlasting, and that everything without you is just like the flower of the uh, flower of the field. It's like the grass that withers and fades. It's only that which is done for you and in you and through you and sharing with you that truly lasts. Father, that your your mission is challenging to love others. Would you speak though first to the ones that don't love themselves? It's hard to love others if you hate yourself. I pray, Father, that you would begin to speak healing words to those who are in incredibly difficult circumstances. Help them to see beyond their pain. Help them to see beyond it and to see that you are the one that turns it into something precious to go out and give to others. Jesus, you pray that you left us here for your purpose to reveal yourself to the world and love it the way you've loved us. And you make a promise, a bold promise, that there is joy, your joy, God's joy, wrapped up in that. We are a people that long to experience joy. And may we do that by coming to you and asking you for healing and hope. We trust that you are the most glorious thing that we could ever possibly imagine, and you are the only thing worth living for. We ask that you change us, shape us, and mold us around your glory and your glory alone. We ask all these things in your mighty name. Amen.